I'd like to invite you now at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. Genesis 28, as we make our way through this book, considering the uh, generations of Isaac, which focuses primarily on Jacob, uh, we come to verse 10, and I'd like to begin reading there down to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, And will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys, for indeed it testifies to us concerning Christ Jesus, his his person and his work. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to his ears to hear and eyes to see the things that Christ has done and will continue to do uh, through his spirit. And so we ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, last time we left off in uh, the story of Genesis, we saw Jacob urged by his mother to flee to Haran, uh, to the land of uh, her relatives, from the murderous rage of his brother. Jacob having stolen the blessing from Esau, and Esau having purposed in his heart that once his father died, he was going to murder his brother. And so his mother told him to flee. But also we saw his father, Isaac, urging him to find a wife from among the daughters of Laban, his uncle. And so he's really given two purposes on this mission. But what is important here is that he is now leaving the land of Canaan. So far, Jacob has been scheming and lying to obtain the blessing of God. But that has only brought about this This result of him being ultimately exiled from the land of promise. 
fearful of what lies behind and uncertain of what lies ahead, Jacob uh, sets out on his journey. Would he find a bride? Would he ever return to the land of Canaan? Would his father's blessings be realized in his life? It is at that, this crucial point in his, in his life that the Lord appears to Jacob when he least expects it. We read in verse 10 that he left Beersheba. You may recall Beersheba is the, the southernmost region of the land of Canaan. And it was here that Isaac was able to obtain land and water rights uh, by making peace with the king of the land, King Abimelech. And so this, in all likelihood, was uh, the place where uh, Isaac resided and Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob also, uh, staying within the covenant community, uh, was leaving and setting out from the southernmost region of Canaan, which means he would have to travel the entire length of the land of Canaan to go north and east to make his way to the land of Haran, which is located in northern Mesopotamia. And certainly that would be a very long journey. But scripture only tells us of one night in that journey. The first night, actually, of that journey is he sets out and, uh, and travels until sunset, and he arrives at a certain unnamed location. You notice there in verse 11, it's just a, a certain place. Now, later on, we're going to find out in verse 19 that that place had a name. It was the city of Lutz, the Canaanite city. And yet, at this point in the story, Scripture remains silent on the name of the location. It's just a certain place. And I think, they, I think Moses does that on purpose because God is going to assign a new significance to this place. Ignoring the fact that it's a Canaanite city, God is going to assign a new significance and thus a new name to this certain location where Jacob ends up. And although, presumably, he was near a city, for some reason, for one reason or another, Jacob is unable to obtain lodging for the night, and thus he is forced to sleep under the stars. We read that he gathers a stone from that certain place, and he puts it under his head for a pillow. And you may wonder, well, that's not very comfortable. Uh, perhaps another way to translate this is that he actually takes multiple stones and puts them around his head, presumably for protection. But there is one stone in particular that will play a crucial instrumental role later on in, in this narrative. And as he falls asleep, as he dozes off, he falls into a dream. And in this dream, Jacob receives a vision of heaven itself. The heavens opening up and coming from heaven, we read, is a ladder, or perhaps better uh, translated, a staircase. This is a, uh, the, the Hebrew term only appears here in all of scripture, and so it's a little difficult to translate, but clearly what's, what he's seen here is a staircase or some sort of way, a pathway between heaven and earth. And the fact that he sees angels ascending and descending on it makes more sense that it would be a staircase rather than a ladder. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, what he sees here is a, a staircase coming from heaven to earth. And that's important to focus, uh, focus on here. The, the, the direction of this staircase is from heaven down to earth. Literally, it is earthward as the staircase descends down. And so Led Zeppelin got it wrong. It's a stairway from heaven. 
And Jacob is not ascending it, but the Lord, Yahweh, is descending it. And I think that's another way, a a, a better way to translate what we see in verse 13, where it says the Lord, Yahweh, was standing on top of it. Uh, You may notice there's a footnote where another, another way of translating that is Yahweh was standing beside him literally standing over Jacob, who is in a sleeping prone position. And, and the reason why I think that is a better way to translate it is because when the Lord speaks, he's not calling out from the very top of the staircase from heaven, calling down to earth, but rather he just simply says, I am Yahweh. He speaks to Jacob. And so the significance here, the things to note is this is a staircase from heaven. Jacob is not climbing it, but the Lord is coming down to him while he is in a deep sleep. And so in the same way that the Lord sovereignly and unilaterally revealed himself to Abraham as Abraham fell into a deep sleep in Genesis chapter 15, so here the Lord sovereignly on his own initiative comes down to Jacob without any effort of his own. You see, this is in stark contrast to what we saw back in chapter 11, where the men of the city of Babel, through their own might, through their own ingenuity, tried to build a temple, tried to build a tower that reached the heavens, one that went from earth to heaven, and of course, they failed miserably. They thought they they were so impressed at the heights that they had achieved, but ultimately we read there in chapter 11, verse 4, that the Lord had to come down to see what they were doing. They weren't even close to reaching heaven. In stark contrast to that effort of trying to reach the heavens from the earth, the Lord sovereignly and graciously condescends and comes down with a a stairway made without hands. And I think that's important because up until this point, Jacob in his life, as we've seen, has been doing everything within his own power to achieve the blessing of God. He's been scheming, he's been lying, he's been, through his own might, through his own devices and desires, trying to obtain that blessing. And ultimately, he needs to learn that he cannot do it through his own might, but God must sovereignly come down to bless him. And that's exactly what he does here, as the Lord sovereignly comes down to Jacob while sleeping. And Jacob noticed on this staircase that it is teeming with angels, angels going to and fro on their missions from God. Hebrews tells us that the angels, are, uh, the angels of God are ministering spirits sent out to serve, those, uh, serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And this must have been very comforting to Jacob at this point. Remember, he's, in, he's fearing his brother. He's uncertain of what lies beforehand. And yet here, like Elijah's servant, his eyes are opened so that he can see the heavenly realm. He can see the angels of God busy in their ministering roles to serve those who are to inherit salvation. And this, uh, this vision was given to him at this time to comfort him, to know that the Lord was there uh, and the Lord was supporting him with the help of his angels. But most importantly, in this vision, he sees the staircase, he sees the angels, but in verse 13, most importantly, uh, third, uh, uh, the third thing that is revealed here is Yahweh himself making an appearance, the Lord himself appearing to Jacob. 
And he introduces himself as the Lord, as Yahweh, using that covenant name of God. But look also in verse 13. He says, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. You may recall back in chapter 27 when Jacob was lying to his father, deceiving him in order to obtain the blessing. And one of the things that Isaac asked, being skeptical of of whether it was Esau or not, he says, how was it that you were able to to hunt and find game so quickly? And you may recall Jacob's response in, in verse 20 of chapter 27 is because the Lord, Yahweh, your God, granted me success. And I highlighted there the fact that he called the Lord, not his God, not our God, but your God. And I wondered at that point if, if, if Jacob really felt confident in calling the Lord Yahweh his God. Well, surely at this point, the Lord is going to change that. He is coming down uh, to tell him that he is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, and now he's going to be known as the God of Jacob. And so here the Lord, as he comes down, he reiterates and expands upon the covenant promises that he first gave to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and now he is extending them to Jacob. Now he is extending the covenant, the covenant of grace to Jacob himself. And part and parcel of this covenant is that through him he would have a seed, an offspring, a people, and a place. A place to dwell in. It's interesting that as we read of these covenant promises that the Lord reiterates where he says, I will give you this land to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be uh, as the dust of the earth. You will go to the north, to the, to the west, to the east, to the south, and, and fill the land. Uh, this, this language should be familiar to us. It's almost as if the Lord is like a broken record in the book of Genesis as he repeats these promises over and over and over again, all the while expanding upon the promises. And while we see the the same thing, we see the continuity in these promises being the same as they are uh, reiterated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one thing we need to appreciate is the difference in context of these promises. You may recall back in chapter 12 and and, and chapter 13, when the Lord first uttered these promises, he gave them to Abraham once he entered the land of Canaan. Now he's repeating these promises to Jacob as he leaves the land. And I think that's important. It's important because Jacob, again, is uncertain. Will he return? Will the blessings that his father gave to him be realized? And here the Lord is now going to, uh, here the Lord is confirming those promises, saying, yes, these things will be realized. But these promises of a people and a place, while great and extraordinary, were far off and remote from, from Jacob's mind. Keep in mind, at this point, you know, the Lord's promising him an offspring, a seed, descendants of people, but he's not even married at this point. He hasn't even found a bride yet. And so all of these promises, while extraordinary, are seemingly remote and far away. Which is why I think the Lord continues in verse 15 to say something new. Look there, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you. Here the Lord reiterates and reassures Jacob of his divine presence 
and protection. Literally, when he says, I will keep you, another way of translating that is, I will guard you. This is the same word that we see throughout the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 121, for example, the Lord is your keeper. He's your guard. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This ultimately is the promise that God is graciously giving to Jacob as he is in his most vulnerable, fearful state. I will protect you. I will guard you. I will bring you back to this land and I will give you this land. As Jacob, uh, and, and, and crucially, there's that promise that he will bring him back as he's about to be sent into exile. Unbeknownst to him, it would be 20 years before he returned and yet before he left the land, On the first night of his journey, the Lord appeared to him and said, I will bring you back. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. But I will realize all of the promises and blessings that have been given to you. So here we see the Lord graciously coming down and making Jacob uh, his covenant partner reiterating and expanding upon those covenant promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and now is giving to Jacob as he's about to leave the land of promise, but with the promise that he would come back. And so when Jacob awakes from this vision, he awakes from this dream in verse 16, we realize him make a confession. Yahweh was in this place, the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. You see, without any planning or effort on his own, he was just dead tired. The sun had gone down, and he went to sleep. Without any planning on his own, completely unaware and clueless of the spiritual realities around him, the Lord sovereignly and graciously peeled back the curtains, as it were, and gave Jacob a glimpse of, of the heavenly realities in order to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And what is Jacob's response? Look in verse 17. He was afraid. This is an appropriate response. This is always the appropriate response when a sinful man is confronted by a holy God. And surely keeping in mind Jacob's recent history, Right? There, there's, a, there's a lot of things going on there that he should feel remorse for. And when he is confronted with the holy God, when he, when he gets what he doesn't deserve, when he has God graciously uh, uh, extend these promises to him, his first response is fear. And yet this fear does not drive him away in terror. He, he doesn't run for the hills. He doesn't seek to get as far away from there as possible. But rather, this is the kind of fear that leads to obedience. This is the type of fear that the Proverbs speak of when it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is the, the, the type of fear and, uh, and respect that Jacob has for God as he, in response, begins, in verse 18, to make a vow. And yet he makes a confession about the place. Remember, this is just, uh, at first, it's just a certain place. Now it's infused with a new meaning. He says, surely this is the gate of heaven. Surely this is the gate of heaven. You see, ever since Adam and Eve 
were expelled from Eden, kicked out, uh, driven east of Eden. Mankind has been seeking a way to get back. They want to get back to paradise. Ultimately, that was the project of Babel, to try to get back to heaven, to get back to paradise through our own uh, uh, might, through our own ingenuity. Well, here the Lord promises to return Jacob to this land and give him this land to him and to his offspring. Here the Lord is granting access back into heaven. As he gets this glimpse of, of, of this uh, stairway coming from heaven down to earth. And as he says, this land I will give to you. The Lord here gives Jacob the true spiritual significance of the promise of the land. You see, it's not just a plot of real estate in the Middle East that God promises to give him, but it is none other than access to heaven itself. That's why the author to the Hebrews, in speaking of the hope of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, Jacob, through faith, knew that the land that he was getting was more than just the physical earth. But, it was what the, what, but ultimately, it was access to heaven itself. It was a gate to heaven itself. Boys and girls, could you imagine if your parents were searching for a new house and you went with them to this new location and the realtor is showing you around and opening up different doors into different rooms and the realtor says, let me show you this one door. And they open the door and on the other side of that door is Disneyland that you have your own private entrance to the happiest place on earth. That would be pretty cool. Although you'd probably get sick of it after a while, right? But you'd have your own access to it. That's what God is giving Jacob here. The land has access to heaven. It is ultimately pointing to the real true spiritual significance, a city not made by human hands, but prepared by God for us. And so Jacob wants to mark this location. First thing in the morning, he wakes up and he says, I don't want to forget where this spot is. This is the gate of heaven. This is access to the happiest place on earth, or uh, uh, in heaven, actually, not even on earth, right? And so what does he do? He takes that stone that we talked about earlier, and he stands it up and he creates a pillar, a marker, pouring precious oil on top of that marker, uh, which is uh, probably all he had at that point, pouring oil on it, perhaps as an act of consecration. To make this a special marker, he stakes claim to the place by faith. Ultimately saying, this is my spot. I'm marking this spot that God has given to me. And showing ownership of that land, he renames that spot Bethel, which means the house of God. Bethel, the house of God. Forget about the fact that the places already have a name. It's called Lutz, but... Now it's being renamed because God has uh, given new significance to this location because that's where he revealed himself to, uh, to Jacob. In response, in verse 20, we read that Jacob made a vow. This is his covenantal response to the Lord's promises. God comes down and makes promises to him, and in return, Jacob replies with a vow, which is a solemn act of worship where he promises to be a faithful subject to God in this covenant. Now, sometimes when we read this language of Jacob saying, if God will be with me, and it seems as if perhaps at first glance, Jacob is setting terms. 
that he's, he's giving demands. Well, God, if, you, if you're with me, if you protect me, if you give me food, if you give me clothing, then you'll be my God. That's not what's going on here. Notice Jacob is responding to God's covenant promises. When he, gives these, uh, when he says these things in, in verse 20, uh, if God will be with me and keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, essentially he's repeating verbatim the promises that God has already given to him. So here by repeating those promises, ultimately Jacob is embracing them by faith. He's not, bark- he's not making demands. He's not setting the terms. God's already done that. And Jacob is receiving those terms and embracing them by faith. And most importantly, in verse 21, he says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, shall be my God. Here Jacob is saying that he's going to continue that line of succession, that Yahweh will be known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and now he will be known as the God of Jacob. This is the essence of any covenant that God has made with people, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And here, Jacob is responding with an amen. Yes, he will be my God. And notice what he says about the stone in verse 22, the significance of this place marker, this pillar he says up, and he says, and this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house pretty interesting language. I mean, this ordinary stone that previously, you know, a a few minutes before he was using as a pillow is now the house of God? Well, here's an example of what we call sacramental language, where the sign is so closely tied to the thing signified, the spiritual reality, that you can call one the other. This stone is God's house. It's still just an ordinary stone, but that stone is a marker for the significance of what God just infused in that place. This is the gate of heaven. This is the access by which you can come to me by faith, by embracing these promises. And Jacob will return to this location. He will return, not as an individual, but return with his family, another sign of God's blessing upon him, to renew that covenant with God. We'll see that later in the book of Genesis. And at this point, as we said, Jacob only has oil to pour out on this stone, but he pledges to give God a tenth of all that the Lord would bless him with. In the same way that Abraham gave Melchizedek a a tenth of all the spoils of war, showing that Melchizedek, Melchizedek was greater than he as the priest of God Most High. And as the Israelites later on will will give God a tenth of all that they have, giving it to the temple, showing that ultimately everything they have comes from God's hand, so also Jacob vows to give a tenth of all of the blessings that God had given to him. As we consider this remarkable story of Jacob receiving a vision of heaven itself, being granted access to heaven as the stairway makes its way down to earth, we may wonder, well, how do we get access to this place? Should we go on, uh, on an archaeology uh, exploration to go try to locate this, this place? Should we try to find that exact stone that Jacob poured oil on, saying this is God's house? Well, no. You see, in the New Testament, we are told that we can still have access to heaven, and yet it is not in a physical location, but it is located in a person. 
And that's what we read in, in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. You may recall in that opening chapter when the disciples, the very first disciples who would become the 12 apostles, began interacting with Jesus and being called by him and following after him. We read of Philip, who went and found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, in the same way that Jacob was not expecting anything when he laid his head down to rest, so here Nathanael can't expect anything good to come out of Nazareth. And Philip says to him, well, come and see. So we read, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and, and, and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Here Jesus is making a play on words of the name of Jacob, which means deceiver, cheater and the name that later he will receive, Israel. And so here, uh, even, even, even at this point, setting our mind back to the Genesis story, Nathaniel answers Jesus, Jesus saying, uh, or he says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Quoting that exact language of what we saw in Jacob's vision as he sees the stairway from heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending on it, Jesus tells Nathanael, you're going to see the same thing, and yet you're not going to see a stairway, you're going to see me. Here Jesus is, is clearly, explicitly saying that he is Jacob's ladder. He is the stairway from heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And yet, when does this take place? As Jesus says, you will see the heavens open and you will see the angel of of, of God ascending and descending. You may wonder, well, when did that take place in his ministry? When did Nathanael receive a vision of the heavens opening and the angels coming down, uh, up and down on Jesus? I think that happened at the cross. As later on in chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking about the benefits of his of of his death, how ultimately his death will produce eternal life. He says in chapter 6, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And in response, we, we read that many of his disciples heard it, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Why is Jesus speaking about giving his, his life so that we might live? He's, he's speaking of his death. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? There again, that same exact word, ascending, telling us the nature in which he will open up the curtains. The way in which he will grant us access to heaven itself is by being lifted up, by ascending First, by ascending on the cross, and then ultimately, through his resurrection, ascending into heaven. 
That's why I think the author to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10 that, that God opened up this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. You see, only the, the only way in which we could be granted access to heaven is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He must atone for our sins. Even if the heavens opened at this point and, and a stairway descended from heaven down to earth, none of us in and of ourselves would be able to ascend that staircase because none of us deserve access to that stairway. Only through the death of Christ can our sins be forgiven. Only through his perfect life can we be given that righteousness which is requisite to dwell uh, before God, to ascend his holy hill, to enter into heaven itself. So that is the way in which Jesus has become the way, the truth, and the life, the stairway from heaven through his flesh. Let us embrace that promise by faith and rejoice in the access that we have been given even now as we have one foot in heaven, because Jesus, our Savior, is already there. Amen? Let's give thanks.